4: This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI HC vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me again on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. Talk to you soon.
1: Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and I am sitting in this week for Tracy V. Wilson. It is December 26th and on this day in 1966, Kwanzaa was celebrated for the first time. Just in case you do not know, Kwanzaa is a seven-day Pan-African holiday, and it's intended to celebrate African family, culture, and community. But it grew out of a really tumultuous time. In a six-day stretch during August of 1965, the predominantly black Los Angeles neighborhood of Watts was devastated by a series of riots which started with a traffic stop that quickly escalated into a massive conflict between police and the neighborhood's residents. By the time the riots ended, 34 people had been killed and another 1,032 injured. 1,000 buildings were destroyed, and an estimated $40 million in damages was done. Dr. Maulana Karenga, a faculty member and former chair of Black Studies at California State University at Long Beach, was an activist a year into his doctoral work in African affairs at UCLA at the time. In an effort to rebuild a sense of community, Karenga founded the organization US to encourage cultural unity among African-Americans. And under the auspices of US, Karenga organized black power rallies and also created the idea of Kwanzaa. The first week-long Kwanzaa celebration began on December 26th of 1966. And Karenga is a controversial figure, He was born Ronald McKinley Everett in 1941, and he took the name Maulana, which means master teacher in Swahili, and Karenga, which means keeper of tradition in the same language, while he was working on his doctorate. He has come under criticism from a variety of quarters. His past as an activist has been characterized as extremist. His organization, Us, was in conflict with the Black Panthers in the 1960s, which often led to violence, sometimes lethal. The FBI investigated US and the Black Panthers, and in 1968, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover called both the Black Panther Party and US Black extremist groups. Hoover also felt that the Panthers and US needed to be kept divided to prevent a union between them which would consolidate power. In 1971, Karenga fell into conflict with his own colleagues in the US organization, Also that year, he was convicted and served time for felonious assault and imprisonment in a case which involved the torture of two women who witnesses said Karenga believed to be plotting against him. Karenga has consistently denied any involvement with this incident. He was released in 1975. In relation to Kwanzaa, Karenga has also been criticized, in that case for allowing it to become a commercial holiday, in conflict with the ideals of celebrating and exploring African identity and community. But despite the criticisms leveled against its creator, in the decades since its inception, Kwanzaa has become part of millions of people's holiday celebrations around the world— It is, at this point, bigger than its creator, and it has become associated with finding and celebrating joy and pride in African heritage and traditions. Harvest celebrations from a variety of African cultures, including Ashanti and Zulu, have inspired and informed the practices of the holiday. The name for Kwanzaa comes from the phrase Matunda ya Kwanzaa, which translates from the Swahili to first fruits. Words in Swahili were specifically chosen for the holiday because it is a language spoken by a large number of people and the language is not connected to any specific region or tribe in Africa. Karenga has described it as a non-ethnic tongue. Each of Kwanzaa's seven days of celebration from December 26th to January 1st is dedicated to one of the seven principles of Kwanzaa called Nguzo Saba. Those principles are unity, self-determination, collective responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith. As any holiday, there are variations in the way Kwanzaa is celebrated from home to home and community to community. But for most, a candle is lit each night in a candle holder called a kinara, often by a child, and then there is discussion focused on the principle related to that day. On December 31st, the final night of Kwanzaa, there is a feast called a karamu. And the final day, January 1st, is one of reflection. Thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat for research on this episode and for Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays doing their amazing sound work on it. You can always subscribe to this day in history class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tomorrow, we will have a story of sobriety and a little bit of violence.
3: This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption.
4: We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that
3: allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hey, everyone. Eve's here. It's the holiday season, and I'm at home keeping really cozy, but history must go on. So here we are. Let's get into another episode. The day was December 26, 1780. Scottish mathematician, scientist, and science writer Mary Somerville was born. Her works made contemporary scientific ideas more accessible to a wider audience and influenced how physical science developments were discussed. Mary was born Mary Fairfax in Jebra, Scotland. She was the fifth of seven children born to Vice Admiral Sir William George Fairfax and Margaret Fairfax, both of whom came from well-off families. Because her father was in the Royal Navy, he was often at sea. Her mother homeschooled her when she was young. Mary learned to read, but she did not learn to read very well, and she could not write. Girls were expected to learn household and social skills, and Mary did chores and learned from the Bible. Beyond that, she often spent time by the seashore and moors. When Mary was around 10 years old and her father returned home from a long absence, he was unhappy with the fact that she could not read well or write and did not know math. So he sent her off to a boarding school in the town of Musselboro. But the elite school was not a good fit for Mary. Though she learned some handwriting, grammar, math, and French at the school, she only stayed there for a year. As a teenager, Mary spent a lot of time in social activities, like going to concerts and parties, but she also began studying on her own. After seeing algebraic symbols in a magazine, she gained an interest in algebra, and she was an avid reader. She took advantage of her family's library, studying navigation, Greek, Latin, and geometry. Her parents tried to keep her from studying math because they believed that studying, such a complex academic subject, could cause girls physical and mental harm. They even took her candles so she couldn't study at night. But she did manage to educate herself in secret. Her brother's tutor bought her books, and she memorized some books. And an uncle helped her with classical studies. In 1804, Mary was forced to marry her first cousin, Samuel Grieg, who was a captain in the Russian Navy. They moved to London and had two sons, one of whom died as a baby. She had a little more leeway to study math and science now that she was married, but Samuel did not support her intellectual pursuits. He died in 1807, and she returned to Scotland with her son. The death of her husband brought her more financial freedom and allowed her to pursue her studies openly. She studied higher math and physical astronomy, and she read Isaac Newton's book, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, on the laws of motion and universal gravitation. Her studies were encouraged by some scholars like William Wallace, a professor of mathematics at Edinburgh University. In 1812, she married Dr. William Somerville, an army doctor who was also her cousin. But unlike Samuel Grieg, he supported her studies. She began studying geology and botany. The couple moved to London and had four children together, though only to survive to adulthood. In London, they became friends with other scientists like William Herschel and Caroline Herschel, as well as Charles Babbage. In 1826, Mary published her first scientific paper on the magnetizing power of the more refrangible solar rays. Though the paper was praised and she continued doing experiments with solar radiation, the idea that the sun's radiation could magnetize substances was proven incorrect. Her own research got some attention, but her translations and works detailing other scientific research and discoveries was more popular. Mary spent four years translating and condensing mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace's Celestial Mechanics. And in 1831, the more accessible Mechanism of the Heavens was available to the public. Three years later, her second book, The Connection of the Physical Sciences was published. The book summarized what was known about the physical sciences and showed how the sciences connected with one another. Mary and Caroline Herschel were the first women who were named honorary members of the Royal Astronomical Society. Somerville continued her scientific work after her husband and son died in 1860 and 1865, respectively. She wrote Physical Geography, which was published in 1848. Another notable work of hers was On Molecular and Microscopic Science, which was basically outdated by the time it was published in 1869. Mary died at her home in Italy in 1872. The next year, her autobiography was released. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any burning questions, you can send them to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Podcast, And if you would prefer, you can send them to us via email at, thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you here again same time tomorrow.
3: We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts,
0: Hello, and welcome to this day in history class, a show that rolls the dice on history seven days a week. I'm Gabe Lussier, and today we're talking about one of the most feared gangsters in American history, and how he got involved in the legendary Flamingo Hotel. The day was December 26th, 1946. Notorious gangster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel opened the glamorous Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. The grand opening featured entertainment by singer and comedian Jimmy Durant, with music by Cuban bandleader Xavier Cugat. The event was attended by some of Siegel's famous Hollywood friends, including actors Clark Gable, George Sanders, and Joan Crawford. Despite the glitzy guest list, the hotel's opening weekend was a total bust, and the fallout from that failure ultimately cost Siegel his life. Benjamin Siegel was born in Brooklyn, New York, on February 28, 1906. He got involved with neighborhood crime as a teenager, and eventually partnered with future mob syndicate leader Meyer Lansky. The pair formed a criminal gang on Manhattan's Lower East Side, called the Bugs and Meyer Mob. They mostly dealt in bootlegging, but eventually the gang joined forces with the Syndicate, a unified group of mobsters from the city's various national gangs. In the 1920s, Siegel made a name for himself as one of the founding members of Murder Incorporated, the so-called enforcement branch of the Syndicate. In his role as a hitman, he allegedly murdered more than 30 people and orchestrated the killings of countless others. Fellow gang members gave Siegel the nickname Bugsy because they said his quick and vicious temper often made him act, quote, crazy as a bedbug. Siegel hated the name because it reminded him of the poverty he had experienced as a child. Anyone who dared call him Bugsy to his face quickly came to regret it. By the mid-1930s, Murder, Inc. had attracted enough heat that Lansky had to send Siegel out of town. The displaced mobster set up shop in Los Angeles, where he helped expand the syndicate's drug trade. Siegel had no problem adapting to a West Coast lifestyle. He began hosting lavish parties at his mansion in Beverly Hills and befriended celebrities like Cary Grant and Virginia Hill an actress who later followed Siegel to Las Vegas. In the early 1940s, Vegas wasn't the tourist destination we know it as today. What would later become the iconic Las Vegas Strip was simply Highway 91 at the time. The change began in 1941 with the opening of the El Rancho Vegas Resort and then the Last Frontier Resort a year later. Both establishments offered deluxe accommodations, top-tier entertainment, and, of course, legalized gambling. It was the latter, in particular, that caught the attention of the mob. In 1945, Lansky sent Siegel to survey the prospect of building their own hotel and casino in downtown Vegas. When he arrived, Siegel liked what he saw and quickly purchased a $600,000 stake in the El Cortez Hotel on Fremont Street. Meanwhile, not far away, a man named Billy Wilkerson was trying to build a new resort on Highway 91. As the founder of The Hollywood Reporter and the owner of several popular nightclubs in LA's Sunset Strip, Wilkerson wanted to bring the glamour of Hollywood and Europe To Las Vegas. Unlike the other resorts, this one wouldn't be themed to the western frontier. Instead, it would have a cosmopolitan style, complete with an upscale restaurant, a Monte Carlo-style French casino, and bidets in all the bathrooms. The only problem was that Wilkerson's vision far exceeded his wallet. The high cost of building materials immediately following World War II depleted his bank account faster than expected. That's when Bugsy Siegel and the New York mob stepped in to lend a hand. Siegel sold his stake in the El Cortez, then pooled his profits with the syndicate's money and delivered a $1 million loan to Wilkerson. The arrangement didn't last long, however, with Wilkerson soon deciding that it was safer to just sell his stake in the resort rather than stay in business with the mob. Siegel took control of the project and immediately started making changes to the blueprints. He tweaked the design to better resemble the resorts in Havana, Cuba, where Lansky and the syndicate had been investing. There's a long-standing rumor that Siegel named the resort after his Hollywood girlfriend, Virginia Hill, whose nickname was The Flamingo, on account of her red hair and long legs. It's true that was her nickname, and the actress certainly spent a lot of time at the casino. However, Billy Wilkerson had been using the Flamingo name well before Siegel and Hill came into the picture. Apparently, the shared Flamingo nickname was pure coincidence. Siegel relished his role as supervisor, but he wasn't very good at it. Construction dragged on and went millions of dollars over budget leading his partners in New York to wonder if Siegel was skimming money from the project. He kept them at bay by promising major profits that would more than make up for the money spent, but unfortunately for him, that big money never came. After months of hype, the Flamingo finally opened on December 26, 1946, but almost nothing went as planned. Siegel had reserved multiple private planes to fly in A-list celebrities like Lucille Ball, Ava Garner, and Veronica Lake. However, due to bad weather, most of the guests stayed home. To make matters worse, the majority of the hotel rooms were unfinished. So even though 28,000 people came to the Flamingos' opening weekend, most of them had to find a room somewhere else, and they took their winnings with them. As a result, the casino ultimately lost between $300,000 and $500,000 during its first week of operation. The response was so bad that within a month of opening, the Flamingo ran out of cash and had to close down. Amazingly, Lansky went to bat for his old friend and was able to convince the other syndicate leaders to give Siegel a second chance. After borrowing money from his fellow mobsters, Siegel made some renovations and reopened the resort in March of 1947, this time calling it the Fabulous Flamingo. Things went better the second time around, and by April the hotel had finally turned a profit. Sadly, the turnaround came too late to save either Siegel's reputation or his life. To the syndicate, The hotel's newfound success was further proof that Siegel hadn't been straight with them in the first place. They were convinced that he had pocketed money from the project and then lied about the hotel's troubles to account for what he stole. The exact details of what happened next are unknown, but it's widely believed that Siegel's partners had him killed for his alleged betrayal. What we know for certain is that on June 20, 1947, an unknown gunman shot and killed Siegel as he sat reading the newspaper in Virginia Hill's living room in Beverly Hills. A few minutes after the hit, three syndicate leaders strolled into the lobby of the fabulous Flamingo and assumed control of the whole operation. Despite its checkered past, the Flamingo continued to rake in cash for the syndicate, and helped establish a new standard for over-the-top luxury in Las Vegas. Its success inspired further investment in the city, and pretty soon the modern Las Vegas Strip was born. As for the Flamingo, it changed hands several times over the years, and is currently owned and operated by Caesars Entertainment. Nothing remains of the original architecture, with the last of its original structures being demolished in 1993. It's said that Siegel's private suite, including his bulletproof glass and secret escape tunnel, was among the last things to be destroyed. Like the ship of Theseus, even though the original Flamingo is long gone, its present form is still considered the oldest operating hotel and casino on the Las Vegas Strip. Today, management tends to downplay the resort's connection to a ruthless killer, and understandably so but they haven't completely forgotten their founder, either. Bugsy's bar inside the Flamingo still churns out cocktails in his honor, and if you look hard enough, you'll find a plaque dedicated to him in the hotel garden. Siegel's legacy is bathed in blood and neon light, sickening and captivating at the same time. All laid out, it doesn't make for the prettiest view, but it's a perfect fit for Sin City. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed today's show, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Show. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always write to us at ThisDay at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.
4: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene, was good?
2: Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen
1: to podcasts.
4: Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on Season 3 of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 7 Questions. Limitless Answers.